My round two of this debate has me responding to inmate 0645-2017's seven video response to my first post, wherein I listed my three best lines of evidence for evolution. That video and his seven-part response to it are round one, though he seems to think he's already in round three. That must be one of those math shortcuts he says he knows. The first four of his videos addressed my comments in the introduction to that debate, and the last three of those seven episodes were divided amongst the three lines of evidence I listed. So this fifth episode from me is where I finally get into that evidence to show how he still doesn't understand any of it. So the rest of my part in this debate should be significantly more educational than the way we started out. Before we get into that, though, I want to point out a couple insights that the charlatan 0645-2017 has revealed about his position. The first one is that he has confirmed that the definition of faith is a belief that is not based on reason. I occasionally encounter believers who deny the standard definition of faith and pretend that faith is merely trust and that it's even evidence-based somehow. And I know that's exactly opposite of what faith really is, but it usually takes a few steps to prove that well enough that the believer will stop repeating that lie. 0645-2017 comes right out and unabashedly admits that religious faith is make-believe, that it doesn't need or want evidence because religious belief is when you imagine something and then convince yourself that it's true by the auto-deceptive power of faith and without any evidence at all, just because that's what you want to believe. He really admits this. Take a look. Evolution is a religion that people believe in. Nobody's ever seen a frog produce a non-frog or a cow produce a non-cow. You can believe it if you want, and you obviously do. I think you don't know anything about evolution. I think you believe a lot of things. You have a great faith. It's an admirable faith. You might have imagination and think that dogs and pine cones are related. Oh, I don't care what you believe. You can't prove either way. So it's not science is my point. It's a religious belief. Why is it no bear today is capable of producing anything other than a bear? And no seal is capable of producing anything other than a seal. But you think a bone in the dirt could do something that no bear or seal today could do. You have incredible faith. I greatly admire you evolutionist faith. You have no clue that a dog is related to a seal. You believe that very strongly. And I admire your faith. But that's not science. Ignoring for the moment all the red flags that went up at everything he just said, we clearly see that his position is that science has demonstrable evidence, so he pretends not to know what any of that evidence is, and that religion only has faith instead. That's an important point, and I'm glad he made that so explicitly clear. I'll be delighted to show this to other believers the next time they accuse me of misdefining faith. But these clips also point out some glaring errors that need to be corrected. The challenge there is that he doesn't just make believe impossible absurdities for no good reason. He also believes obvious falsehoods against all reason. In the video I'm replying to now, for example, he tried to come up with any excuse he could think of to reject or ignore all my evidence, dismissing volumes of it without even looking at any of it, as though all of it must be fairy tale fables like his own beliefs are. It's not just that he deliberately ignores everything pitted against him with hand-waving dismissals, but that he refuses to admit or correct any of his misconceptions, no matter how solidly proved. And he will not allow himself to understand evolution properly. Because watch what he says here. What I would like is any of you people who have teachers that are giving you a hard time like this, teaching you stuff like this, evolution in school, give, say, teacher, this is kind of unfair to have teacher versus student. After all, you have an academic advantage over me. You're going to give me a grade. You could fail me. And you could hurt my career. 
that's not nice, that's not fair for you to have this academic advantage. You have a psychological advantage. Your teacher, you know the big words. I'm lowly student. Notice, he thinks the student is supposed to resist being taught, as if learning the lesson well enough to get a passing grade is some sort of attack on the child, as if they're learning forbidden knowledge. Remember, inmate 0645-2017 is a quack with a bogus doctorate in education, which is ironic because he doesn't have an education himself. And he's obviously opposed to education, even though he brags about being a teacher, but in a church where this sort of obstinate behavior would be justified. Children in American Christian schools are being told things that are either not evidently true or they're evidently not true. And of course, the best and brightest among those students should object to that as a matter of self-defense because they're being conditioned to be unable to think critically or understand anything properly, and especially to never change their minds when they're wrong, which is, of course, dishonest. But the purpose of a school should be for the teacher to help the students to learn how to figure out what is true or false and to provide information to improve understanding and thus make them competent and capable. But you can only do that if what you're teaching is actually true because only accurate information has practical application and religious instruction isn't just inaccurate, it's counterproductive and degenerate. Because the only value any information can have is however accurate you can show it to be. And if you can't show that it's accurate at all, then it has no value at all. Thus, everything Christianity, or indeed any faith-based belief teaches, is worthless. It is dishonest to assert baseless speculation as though it were a matter of fact, and it is unethical to teach what no one has any reason to believe is even true. But that's what all religions do. So that's what religious schools do, too. Their purpose is to lie to their students, to make them believe. Inmate 0645-2017 made one more interesting admission because he really had no choice. So even if the Bible were true, which it can't be, it would still be a fairy tale by definition. And so is evolution, a complete fairy tale. He apparently thinks that every belief is a religious belief, and he's afraid to learn anything that challenges his belief, even if it's correct. Because we know that no matter how obviously wrong he is, he cannot, must not correct himself. He will not, because it doesn't matter what the truth is, because he just wants to believe by his own admission. His type of religion depends on ignorance such that the more you know, the less you believe. And he has to believe very strongly because he doesn't know anything. Evolution is not a religion, and Kant knows it's not. But he is no. I don't know that it's not a religion. I honestly, sincerely believe evolution, the first five of the six I give, are religious. They have to be accepted by faith. There is no proof, scientific proof, that a speck of nothing can explode and create everything. There's no evidence for that at all. There is no evidence of any star forming. None. Nobody's ever seen one form. We don't even know how it can happen. Nobody's ever seen that, so you believe it. There's no evidence of a planet forming from a hot molten ball of rock. There's no evidence for that. That's a religious belief. There's no evidence that life can start in a warm little pond or organic soup. That's part of a religion. The problems with this are numerous. Any argument with a creationist will involve a host of logical fallacies, and we've already seen several in this one. Projection, double standard, begging the question, argument from ignorance, false equivalence, and so on. But the worst fallacy in this particular debate is the definition fallacy, not to be confused with appeal to definition, which is different. Definition fallacy is when the problem with your argument is that the subject isn't what you think it is. Inmate 0645-2017 doesn't know what evolution is, and he thinks other things are evolution that aren't. 
But just to clarify, which I should have done earlier, the scientific explanation for the formation of the universe is Big Bang Theory, proposed in 1927 by a Catholic priest named Georges Lemaitre in an attempt to square the work of physicists like Einstein, Friedman, and de Sitter with Hubble's observations indicating an expanding universe. Lemaitre was a creationist who was happy with the idea of the universe having a beginning. The scientific explanation for the origin of chemical elements is the stellar nucleosynthetic theory proposed by another creationist, although an odd one, the astronomer Fred Hoyle in 1946. The scientific explanation for the formation of stars and planets is in two parts. The nebular theory, first proposed by a pair of philosophers, Immanuel Swedenborg in 1734 and Immanuel Kant in 1755, and then separately by mathematics engineer Pierre-Simon Laplace in 1796. Kant and Laplace also proposed the core accretion theory being a scientific explanation of planetary formation. Every one of these scientific theories has observable, documented, evidentiary support and fulfilled predictions and none of them are remotely like religious beliefs. The scientific explanation for the origin of life is not a theory. It was a hypothesis that was first proposed by another creationist named Rudolf Virchow in 1855. And since then, it has grown into a more than a dozen interconnected hypotheses, each with evident experimental promise, and nearly all of them could be true at the same time. None of these hypotheses are remotely like religious beliefs either. The scientific explanation of biodiversity was proposed by Charles Darwin in 1859, and it is called the theory of evolution. And it has more evidence backing it than all the others combined. And bear in mind, that every one of these other theories were proposed by people who had either never heard of evolution or who rejected evolution, or both in the case of Rudy Virchow. So they cannot be classed as different levels under the umbrella term of evolution. They are not related and in no way connected. If you have to lump every scientific theory into what you imagine to be the religion of evolutionism, then your problem is not with the theory of evolution. Your problem is with scientific explanations. Your problem is with science. Which brings me to the three lines of evidence in support of evolution that you asked for. The first of them is the fact that evolution happens. So the first line of evidence is the fact that evolution happens. Now, I want you to stop and think about that just for a few minutes, okay? The proof for evolution is evolution happens. I mean, now, I'm going to uh, listen. And you poor college students that have to put up with this stuff, listen carefully. I'm going to try to explain some things you can do to try to survive the insanity you're subjected to. That biodiversity and complexity do increase. Now, Biodiversity and complexity increase. Okay, so you said the first line of evidence, the fact that evolution happens, biodiversity, bio means living, diverse is different, biodiversity and complexity increase naturally. Do they really? Does complexity naturally, in, just by nature, increase? Does our shop automatically get more organized? <laughs> Bill, you work frantically trying to just keep a pathway through the thing, you know, and trying to put all the tools back, okay? Uh, so, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Nelson. The second law of thermodynamics says things tend to decrease in order, and your favorite guys like Asimov would say the same thing. Asimov wouldn't say that if he were talking about biology, and we know because this is what he did say about that. Creationists have learned enough scientific terminology to use it in their attempts to disprove evolution. 
They do this in numerous ways, but the most common example, at least in the mail I receive, is the repeated assertion that the second law of thermodynamics demonstrates the evolutionary process to be impossible. In kindergarten terms, the second law of thermodynamics says that all spontaneous change is in the direction of increasing disorder, that is, in a downhill direction. There can be no spontaneous buildup of the complex from the simple, therefore, because that would be moving uphill. According to the creationist argument, since by the evolutionary process complex forms of life evolve from simple forms, that process defies the second law, so creationism must be true. Such an argument implies that this clearly visible fallacy is somehow invisible to scientists who must therefore be flying in the face of the second law through sheer perversity. Scientists, however, do know about the second law, and they are not blind. It's just that an argument based on kindergarten terms is suitable only for kindergarten. I don't expect you to understand any of this since you don't understand anything scientific, so I will explain. The second law of thermodynamics states that the total heat and energy of a closed system cools down or slows down over time. But the Earth is not a closed system. It is powered by the sun. Life gets its energy from the sun and uses that energy to replicate and proliferate. If your understanding of thermodynamics was correct, that would mean that nothing could ever become more organized or complex, including our socioeconomic systems or industries. Yet, they obviously do. So you don't understand Asimov, evolution, or the second law of thermodynamics. I remind you that the laws of thermodynamics were devised by Lord Kelvin, who described himself as a proponent of intelligent design who did not like Darwin's theory of evolution. Yet, he knew that his laws of thermodynamics posed no conflict for evolution when he begrudgingly admitted that Darwin's theory was not unscientific. So the creationist who invented the laws of thermodynamics knew them better than you do, and he knew they didn't pose any challenge for evolution, because they don't. So you obviously can't use it against evolution either. What did he just say here? Did, am, I, am I getting it right? Let's back up 10 seconds here and make sure I got that right. Which brings me to the three <coughs> lines of evidence in support of evolution that you asked. <coughs> the first of them is the fact that evolution happens that biodiversity and complexity do increase naturally, as alleles vary in, in increasing distinction in reproductive populations where beneficial mutations do occur and are in... Hold it. Beneficial mutations occur in, in these populations and genetic complexity increases. They just makes this statement and runs right on. Pepto-bismol time right here. Let's just talk for a minute. Is it true? Oh, hang on right here. I think I got it figured out. I'm getting it, Steve. This is great. <laughs> Evolution is based on two totally faulty assumptions. This is for a few slides out of my seminar, part four, lies in the textbooks, if you folks would like all this, which is part of the bigger series, Creation Seminar, 50 bucks for the whole thing, 18 hours on creation, evolution, all the facts for creation. Okay. It's based on the assumption that mutations will make something new and natural selection makes it survive and take over the population. See, if mutation happened and one animal became a little better than the rest, what must happen to the rest? They gotta die. If they don't die, the new improved critter or plant or whatever can't take over the population, it gets blended back in. So evolution is actually a religion of death. This is Adolf Hitler 101. Let's find the superior race and kill off the rest and speed up the process. We cover that on video number five, the dangers of evolution, in my series here. No, 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 no. 
2017. Most of your arguments are fallacious, and all of them are false. This one, however, is also an example of Godwin's Law, which means that you've just lost this argument. Don't worry, you didn't really just lose this argument when you brought up Hitler. You already lost a long time before that. I do need to point out, though, that Hitler was a creationist. He spelled that out clearly enough in Mein Kampf, as well as his speeches and other quotations, where he argued, just like you do, that changes in species are limited to their kind. Hitler had all of Darwin's books burnt, and so did Stalin, who also gulagged or murdered any scientist promoting Darwinian theory, which is a bit ironic, considering the baseless criticism you just tried to make. I'll include a link below, giving all the proof that Hitler wasn't a Darwinist and that Darwin wasn't a eugenist either. Again, Darwin was very explicit about that in all three of his most famous books, right from the very first book, The Voyage of the Beagle. Racists, however, including Nazis, are overwhelmingly Christian, and the Ku Klux Klan are exclusively creationist. They unabashedly admit, stating outright, that they do not believe in evolution. They believe God created different races with the intent that they remain separate. So if you're trying to poison the well against Darwin by associating him with Hitler, you'd better back right off that fallacy because it will backfire badly if you try that with me. And <clears throat> evolution's a religion of death, it's not of life. Evolution isn't any kind of religion at all, not by any definition, not even by your own definition. Usually the word religion means belief in a supernatural power or powers that created the universe. Or, some, some say, created and governs the universe. And evolution is a theory of biodiversity which you have confused with philosophical naturalism, meaning that it has no belief in the supernatural, nor does it have anything to do with the origin of the universe. Even if cosmology were related to evolution, which it obviously isn't and can't be, that wouldn't matter, because cosmogonists now say that the universe is in some sense eternal and never had a beginning at all. I know you've been repeating this lie every day for years, but it's always been and always will be wrong. So when you repeat it tomorrow, we will all know, and your followers will know, that you're deliberately lying. Natural selection is the superior one survives, the weaker die, and that's a good thing in their thinking. The inferiors die off. There is nothing superior or weaker in evolutionary thinking, only in creationist thinking. Hitler, for example, praised racial purity and superiority, but Darwin taught that purity leads to congenital defects and that superiority is a variable determined by the environment. There is no requirement that others must die for the new variety to live. Look at your own almost adequate explanation for human-manipulated derivations of cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, kale, broccoli, and cauliflower, all from the wild mustard plant, which did not have to die for any of these other varieties to appear. Look at butterflies and moths for another example. One group flies by day and the other group took the night shift. That's how it usually goes. And there's hundreds of thousands of Lepidopteran species. Biodiversity means more and more of them, not just one replacing the other so that there can be only one. The question is very simple. Did man bring death into the world like the Bible says, or did death bring man into the world? See, according to the Bible, man brought death into the world and death is a bad thing. Why is it that whenever I argue with a creationist, it always turns out that I know both sides of this argument better than y'all know your own alone? No. The Bible says that God lied. The serpent knew that Adam wouldn't really die on the day that he ate the magically cursed fruit, which every thinking person immediately realizes is a parable. 
The Bible mentions the fruit of many times, and it's always a metaphor for the results of choices made or actions taken. And it's obviously what that means here, too. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not a literal tree made out of wood. Adam and Eve had a choice, to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, meaning to live forever as they were, or to learn about good and evil and become more than they were. It could be a parable of our evolution. That's how I read it when I was a Christian. But it's a closer parallel to the old adage that you can never go home again, that once you take that step, there's no going back to that state of childlike innocence, like a coming-of-age story. Making the choice to know good from evil, to have a sense of morality and humility, distinguished humanity from the other animals, and made them like unto the gods of the Elohim, because this fable originated in Semitic polytheism. According to Enuma Elish, the oldest creation myth, also from the Semitic tradition and the original inspiration for the fables in Genesis, the sixth generation of gods created men to complete creation so that the seventh divine generation could rest. So the people were only human. In the fable of Eve's temptation, which was composed about a thousand years later, the serpent is the only character who told the truth. Adam and Eve did not die on that day, and they didn't bring death into the world either because they were created mortal. The way we know that is that God said he had to get Adam out of the garden to prevent him from also eating from the fruit of the tree of life, because then he would live forever. Get that? Adam was given the choice to know right from wrong or to live forever, and that one God didn't lie about. Both trees were right there in the beginning of the fable, so that Adam had a choice. He could have eaten from the tree of life, and if he made that choice, then he would live forever. So, pause the video and answer this question. What would have happened if Adam had never eaten from either tree, or from any tree? What would have happened if Adam never ate anything at all? According to evolution, millions of years of death brought man into the world. And death is a wonderful thing. Death is the hero of the plot in evolution. This coming from someone representing and defending a death cult, where you must forsake everything good about life to receive the empty promise of an imaginary reward, which you'll supposedly receive only after you die. And you're using this backward logic to attack a theory of biodiversity and survival in the struggle for life. Have you ever said anything that wasn't a lie, that wasn't exactly opposite of the way things really are? Mutations do not cause evolution, and the, most scientists who understand this will admit it. Like Pierre Paul Gross said, no matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. You are a liar, sir. You said most scientists who understand this, yet you just quoted one of the rarest of all scientists, a religious critic of Darwin's theory. No fair quoting your own side as if they represent mine. Most scientists who understand this really say the exact opposite, as is indicated by even the most basic instruction on what evolution actually is or teaches. They rearrange existing information. Somebody called me today, yesterday or today about mutations. I said, hold it, I'm not aware of any mutations that add information. If a person has six fingers, hexadecimalism, is that new information or is that copying existing information? They already had the information to make a finger, it just made an extra one, right? Wrong, of course. I mean, when are you ever right? It turns out that the gene for six fingers is actually dominant in humans. Weird, but true. Now, that's not a very intelligent design, now is it? Which reminds me, 
Since you refuse me even the most basic courtesy of calling me by my real name, just to be condescending and rude, then you may as well call me Inigo Montoya, because I've been preparing for this exchange for 20 years. You are my six-fingered man. And this debate isn't going to get any better for you. Mutations don't increase genetic complexity. Dr. Lee Spetner taught information theory for decades at John Hopkins University and Wiseman Institute, <clears throat> spent years studying mutations. He has written an important new book, Not by Chance, Shattering the Modern Theory of Evolution. In the book, he wrote, <clears throat> In all the reading I've done in the life sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. All point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information, not increase it. Once again, you're citing a creationist to speak on evolution, a topic religious extremists have been conditioned to reject through dogmatic inculcation since early childhood. There are multiple examples I could list of creationists ignoring or refusing to admit evidence against their position, but there are also peer-reviewed studies that have shown evolution being driven by mutations that do increase complexity and even add new genetic information. It's right there in the life sciences literature if you're not afraid to look at it. Mutations happen, no question. But that's not going to drive evolution. Here's a five-legged bull. There's no inf new information added. He already had a leg. It built one in the wrong place, that's all. That's not a mutation. That's an absorbed twin. Just one of those things you think God ought to prevent. But he lets this sort of lifelong suffering happen to the innocent anyway. Here's a short-legged sheep. That's a mutation. Already had legs, just made them too short. He's the first one the wolf is going to catch. Go, boys, go. Here comes the wolf. Herman couldn't run fast enough. Too bad, Herman. See you later. There aren't any wolves where these sheep live, and long-legged sheep can't outrun wolves either. But here's where I have to point out that natural selection and artificial selection both have opposite goals, even though both operate on random mutations. The wild mustard plant obviously doesn't have all the other genes to make cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, kale, broccoli, and cauliflower. Those are all mutations. If all that was already in the code, then the wild mustard plant would look like these others, but there's no way it can look like all of them. Each one is a product of unique mutations being selected by farmers. And there are two important differences between the results produced by natural and artificial selection. One is that artificial selection is deliberately orchestrated, bypassing all the normal natural restrictions that slow evolution down and improve the viability of the organism. So artificial selection is much faster than natural selection. And that's where a lot of weaknesses in the new breeds come from, too. Because natural selection works for the benefit of the organism, to improve its ability to survive. Whereas artificial selection works according to the whim of the breeder, who often has entirely superfluous criteria, working for our benefit rather than that of the organisms we're experimenting with. See, mutations are scrambling existing information. From the letters of the word Christmas, you can get all sorts of other words. We Christmas games, you have games, you know, who can make the most words out of the letters from Christmas? But you're never going to get Xerox, Zebra, or Queen. There's no Z available. It's not in Christmas. So a mutation is not going to add information. It's going to scramble existing information. No, mutations don't scramble information. But they do change the information. And any change in information becomes new information by definition. For another even better example, you also mentioned corn and the many varieties that we now have. Turns out that corn evolved very quickly from a type of grass called teosinte. The difference between this grass and the original maize is only five genes. And the specific mutations in those genes and their location in the genome have been identified. So we know 
for sure that the information to make corn did not already exist in the grass. Corn is a particular type of grass with a handful of selected mutations that turned out to be beneficial for both the plant and the people raising it, at least initially, though admittedly some of the more recent versions have been derived too fast and consequently aren't quite as good. But the point is still made that it's descent with inherent genetic modification, not a new kind. And all known mutations are detrimental, harmful, fatal, or neutral, don't do anything. Nobody's given a good one. Yes, they have. Beneficial mutations have been precisely defined and positively identified. There are plenty of definitely beneficial mutations documented. These are the textbook examples. What you say nobody's ever seen were already in the textbooks long before you went to prison, so it's about time you caught up. You're repeating the eighth foundational falsehood of creationism. In the eighth chapter of my book, I don't restrict myself to the textbook examples. I list several more, including a handful of really new, novel, and nice ones right from the human genome. One beneficial mutation that isn't listed there because it happened too recently is a plastic-eating bacteria. A naturally evolved mutation allowed a particular bacteria to develop an enzyme as to essentially eat plastic. Then, in an amusing side story, scientists tweaking that enzyme in the lab trying to study it accidentally improved it so that now it eats plastic much more efficiently than it could before. And of course, no organism ever already had the information in it to eat plastic or nylon, which is another good example of beneficial mutation, but that one's in the book. Natural selection. Genes vary in natural populations. They talk about the giraffe stretching his neck to reach the taller trees. This was proven wrong years ago. This is Lamarckism. Nobody with a brain and understands science believes that anymore. Then you shouldn't have cited Pierre Paul Grasse, because he was Lamarckian. So you're saying that your own expert doesn't have a brain or understand science? Neither do you, obviously, because natural selection was Darwin's theory that replaced Lamarckism because it offered the first working mechanism that Lamarck couldn't provide. And scientists can't just say that anything is possible because we know of many things that are not possible. Before you can say whether something is possible, there must be some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon indicating that such possibility exists. Natural and artificial selection, sexual selection, and genetic drift are all demonstrable mechanisms that really work and show that evolution is not only possible, but is definitely really happening. Natural selection, sexual selection, and genetic drift have all been proven to have predictable effect in guiding this variance. Okay. Well, let's talk about this for a minute, Mr. Nelson. you got to stop you this page at a time, okay? Creationists don't have any argument with natural selection. We thought of it first, okay? Then why did Darwin get all the credit for that? Why have no creationists ever argued in favor of natural selection before Darwin introduced the idea? Pause the video here and tell me who first proposed the concept of natural selection and give me the publication to prove it. It's only a conservative process that removes defective organisms and keeps the species strong. That's what it does. If you have no problem with natural selection, why do you keep insisting that it doesn't work beyond weeding out defective organisms? Why did Jonathan Wells and you both try so hard to discredit Kettlewell's moth experiments showing exactly what you just said to be true? Dr. Kettlewell, Oxford University in the UK, introduced the peppered moth melanism story in 1955 as evidence of natural select evolution by natural selection, which is what Mr. Nelson is counting on to get the skeleton, the backbone to change, and his best evidence for evolution is, well, everybody believes in it. Since then, it's appeared in almost every biology textbook as evidence for evolution. You can see the story in Melanism, Evolution in Action. The moth does not rest on tree trunks. 
After 40 years of watching, they found exactly two moths on the tree trunks. Two. Most of the time, the problem is that you have no idea what you're talking about, yet you assert your assumptions as though you have authority. Otherwise, you're just being dishonest or confounded by logical fallacies. But in this one case, it might be that you simply don't know any better and are repeating propaganda that is no more reliable than an urban legend. This is why we refer to peer-reviewed studies that have been checked and vetted, like this 30-year study by Cambridge University, which overtly supports Kettlewell's original research and shows that the majority of peppered moths actually do rest on tree trunks. Just remember that whether it is because you're stupid, ignorant, illogical, or lying, you're always wrong on every point, every time. And even your lackeys in the office with you should start to see that eventually. Natural selection may have a stabilizing effect. It does not promote speciation. It's not a creative force, as many people have suggested from Science Magazine. Natural selection can act only on those biological properties that already exist. It cannot create properties in order to meet adaptational needs. And in the sixth edition of Darwin's book, I've got I don't know, several editions of it over there, <clears throat> he abandoned natural selection as being the force behind evolution. Doesn't work. Natural selection is incompetent to account for the incipient stages of useful structures. Charlie finally caught on. Mr. Nelson, follow Charlie's example, please. Catch on. It doesn't work. That's another lie. On the preceding page, Darwin had just finished explaining the role that natural selection definitely does play in evolution, that it does select certain variation. What he says here, that you have grossly and dishonestly misrepresented, is that natural selection does not create these variations, and he went on trying to figure out what does. As shortly after Darwin published Origin of the Species, the Augustinian friar Gregor Mendel discovered genetics through his extensive experiments with pea plants, and he realized that this is where the answer lies to Darwin's dilemma. In the 1880s, pioneers in genetics like Hugo de Vries had confirmed that mutations do happen and produce new traits, though of course they couldn't say exactly how. That answer didn't come until significant advances in microscope technology. But now, of course, we know of a few classifications of mutations and exactly how they occur, and numerous specific mutations have been definitely identified and linked to particular effects. So we know that mutations produce the variants that count as new information that was definitely not already contained within the code, and that natural selection, as a matter of population mechanics, really does influence which mutations proliferate. You don't need faith to believe that because natural selection, sexual selection, in other words, you know, the male might select a certain female or she might select a certain male, leaving the other poor guy out. He's out in the cold, you know. Uh, he don't have a Corvette. He's got a Toyota, so the girls won't go out with him. Uh, and genetic drift have all been proven to have a predictable effect. Yes, Mr. Nelson, they've all been proven to keep the species exactly what it is. They've all been proven to not change it to anything else. That's another lie. How do we know that it's a lie and not just another of your stupid, fallacious, ignorant mistakes? Because you already admitted that microevolution happens, and you've already admitted that this is how microevolution happens. So God gave all the creatures a gene code with a variety of options coming out in the babies. Some might have longer hair, some have shorter hair, some longer legs, some shorter legs, and gradually over many generations, the ones that are best suited to that environment will survive and take over that area. So the dogs with long hair survive better in Alaska, and the dogs with short hair, thin legs, thin body survive better in the desert, like the dingo. That's not evolution. 
It is natural selection. So artificial selection of variation within a species producing dachshunds from basset hounds from bloodhounds and natural selection producing similar effects in other subspecies is not keeping the species exactly what it is. It's doing the opposite, producing new changes within the species into different varieties. You've also admitted that speciation happens. Now, I proved that speciation is macroevolution, and I proved it well enough that it doesn't matter if you're not honest enough to admit that fact. You think speciation is part of microevolution, but in fact, micro and macro are both simply evolution. And even if you refuse to admit that either, it doesn't matter. By admitting that this is how new species evolve, you've already admitted the origin of species by natural selection. The game is up. That's all evolution is. All we have left to show is what evolution isn't. I know defenders of the faith hate the burden of proof more than a vampire hates garlic, but this burden is yours to justify your lies or concede them or have everyone else see why you won't when you should. So pause the video here and answer this question. Apart from simple naming conventions like moths to butterflies or wolves to dogs, when has evolution ever proposed that one kind of animal should turn into another kind, meaning a new kind that didn't belong to every ancestral clade that its parents did? Show me that lesson from any academic source teaching evolution. I submit that you can't answer that question because evolution never taught that and the laws of evolution wouldn't allow it. So every time you repeat that no one's ever seen a dog give birth to a non-dog, you are erecting a straw man fallacy deliberately and dishonestly misrepresenting what evolution actually is. That question even allows your second straw man fallacy, that an individual should give birth to an individual of a different kind, because you should know that evolution is on the population level. For example, Spanish, French, and Romanian all evolved by cladogenesis from Latin. Latin did not have to die for any of these other languages to emerge since they came up in different places and each arose gradually, eventually becoming less intelligible as Latin and slowly distinguishing into Spanish and French over multiple generations. Italian also arose from Latin, this time by anagenesis, where the new language slowly replaced the old one. So that happens too. But there was never a first person to speak Italian who then had to wander around a bunch of Latin speakers looking for someone else who speaks Italian. Languages, like organisms, change over generations, not with the birth of a single individual. So pause the video here to admit the fact that evolution concerns populations over generations rather than individuals giving birth to something that isn't what the parents are, because none of that is true of evolution. And pause the video here to admit two more things. One, that since we are talking about populations, then even if we find fossils representative of any taxonomic group, it doesn't matter whether that, that individual had any children. And that two, even if it had children, then no matter how true evolution is, those children would not have been noticeably different, certainly not a different kind. At best, they could only have been a modified version of whatever their ancestors were. So. Now that we've covered that evolution does have evidence and that it's not a religion, that it doesn't have anything to do with the origin of the universe, that speciation is macroevolution and that there's no such thing as a kind, we have to correct one more mistake too. No one believes we came from a rock. Every time you've ever said otherwise, it's always been wrong. The textbooks you read from don't say that we came from rocks either. That one that said that life may have begun in the rocks might have referred to geothermal vents. I don't know because it doesn't say, but that's the only hypothesis that even mentions rocks. You tried to justify that lie by asking where the minerals in our bodies came from, but the earliest forms of life didn't have any minerals in them. 
It was only later or more advanced life forms that began incorporating minerals like iron for blood or calcium for bones. And both of those are technically metal and many geologists distinguish rock from metal, though I would argue that metal is the best form of rock. So just to be crystal clear about this, geologists define a rock as a bound aggregate of minerals, mineraloids, and fragments of other rocks. And they define a mineral as an inorganic solid crystalline substance which has a fixed structure. Not one word of that applies to the earliest and most primitive life forms we came from. They were organic chemicals that were basically liquid and very fluid, whereas a rock is solid by definition. I know that this is one of your favorite lies, that you've repeated it every day for decades. And I know you don't have enough accountability to stop telling that lie just because you've been proven wrong as a matter of public record. But your followers, donors, and minions will notice how dishonest you are the next time you repeat this lie because they'll know you know better.